Good morning, VCF. My name is Rajiv, and it is a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, he is risen, and then all of you are supposed to say, he is risen indeed. This morning, uh, my four-year-old walks into our room, Simone, and Lydia goes, Happy Easter, Simone. He is risen. And she said, Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I think a lot of us uh, come into church today with coming from different backgrounds. And honestly, thank you is a wonderful response because he is risen. Thank you, God. Thank you is the perfect response. And um, this morning, I was reminded that um, Will Smith, I just, I just heard this story last night. But Will Smith was actually supposed to be in the Matrix. Did you guys know that? Instead of Keanu Reeves as Neo, it was supposed to be Will Smith. He was actually initially casted. And the way it happened was this. The Wachowski brothers, they're the ones who wrote uh, the, the, the Matrix trilogy. They pitched it to him when Will Smith was at the height of his career. He just did Men in Black. He just filmed Independence Day. He was known as the go-to alien guy. And he was making these blockbuster films year after year. And the Wachowski brothers who wrote the script came up to him and said, this movie is going to be great. What's going to happen is you're going to fly in the air. And then the camera is going to go all around you like this. And Will Smith kind of scratched his head and said, uh, that doesn't sound so promising. Because what, the way that it was pitched to him was not very, uh, it, 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 it seemed like a bogus movie. It seemed like almost like a cartoon. And one of the things that Will Smith said is that was actually his biggest regret because he actually said no to that film and he went and did Wild Wild West, <laughs> which was arguably his worst performance ever. And he said it, I didn't. I'm a big Will Smith fan. The idea is this. If something is pitched to you in a certain way, you kind of, you kind of receive the truth of it based on how it's pitched to you, honestly, and what your imagination can actually do. And at the time, Will Smith just did not have the imagination to believe that this thing that the Wachowski brothers were pitching to him would actually turn into being one of the most remarkable and captivating series in film history. But he just couldn't really see it. And so it's interesting because Jesus was pitching the truth to his disciples all the time, and he repeatedly told him, told the disciples that he would have to die and suffer and endure so much and eventually resurrect on the third day. I rem a couple weeks ago, I preached on Matthew 16, and I was talking about Jesus' interaction with Peter. And, Peter. and Jesus actually told him, the Son of Man will have to be suffered, will have to suffer, be crucified, and will resurrect on the third day. And Peter says, no, never, never. And so Jesus had been telling them this all throughout his ministry, the three years that he was with the disciples. But for some reason, the disciples, when Jesus died, it didn't occur to them that he had just told them this. It didn't actually occur to, occur to them. Oh, time and time again in the Gospels, we see that Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. But for some reason, the moment that everything took place leading up to the Passion, they couldn't put two and two together. And this is really intriguing. And this is where we come to in the text in John chapter 20. 
at, and when we read John chapter 20, I'll be reading in the NRSV, this is the resurrection of Jesus. It didn't quite feel like Easter that day. And a lot of us in this COVID season, even today, we're not used to Easter looking this way. We're not meeting together. There's no festivities. Maybe, maybe it's opening up a little bit, but it doesn't actually quite feel like Easter. And I want to say to you that when Easter happened for the very first time, it really didn't feel like Easter back then either. So we are actually in good company this morning. And so I'm actually going to read the narrative of, of, of John in John chapter 20. But I want us to keep us in mind that faith and that the way that we experience faith in our life, oftentimes we, we in the past and even with the disciples, we see that seeing is believing. When we see the resurrected Christ, then we will believe. But what happened in what, what Christianity is all about is actually believing is seeing. Believing in God is, is now, it creates the new perspective in which we navigate life and in, in how we actually see things. Okay? So, John chapter 20, I'll start with verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. It was very descriptive. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbunai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your, fa- and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. We see that Mary here becomes an apostle to the apostles. She's almost the, the first apostle to the, to, to the rest of them. And I'm going to read the next few verses. 
when it, verse 19, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said, as, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And so this isn't, this isn't the crux of the sermon, but I thought just in these first 23 verses, there's some interesting things that we can take away of why is it that Jesus had to appear to these people, to his closest followers, even after he told them that he would be resurrected? And, and, and it's a very simple question, but I wonder if you guys have ever just asked this plainly in the te- from the text. Why does he have to appear for them to believe when he had been predicting this all along? And I think there's a faith. Today we're going to be talking about faith primarily. And there's faith and a knowing that's get, that gets tested when such suffering happens. And there's a few categories that you and I might actually be in. So I just want us to consider this as we go deeper in the text. The first thing is, perhaps their grief was so profound that it completely overwhelmed them. And sometimes when you're in a place of deep grief, and when you're grieving somebody, something, or a situation in your life, perhaps it is so intense that you actually can't place God, you can't place the things that He's told you, And you can't even place the obvious aspects of Christianity that could actually help you get through it. And so it is quite possible that when Jesus died, it represented a complete shattering of all their hopes and dreams to such an extent where they were completely blinded to all the things that God had instilled in them in those three years. And it's almost like they completely forgot And I want to say to some of you today who are in areas of grief, you are in stages of grief, that you might have actually forgot what God had been telling you all along. And you come to Easter today in a place where grief is so profound, nobody will understand your grief. And no amount of words can actually articulate how bad you're grieving. And sometimes you'll even look at your own grief and you'll relate it to somebody else's grief and you'll say, ah, that's not really grief. You'll try, and, you'll try and compare your grief to somebody else's grief and you'll actually devalue your grief because, well, in perspective, it's not really grief. But there's a way that grief can actually lead to lack of faith and lack of remembering who you actually are and who God is. And I wonder if some of you are there today. There's another thing. In another, in another uh, section of the gospel in Luke chapter 24, uh, on the road to Emmaus, um, Jesus appears to the disciples. They don't recognize him. And he's talking to them. He's talking to them and they're walking and he's opening up the scriptures even and, 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 and saying what the context of what happened. And they don't recognize him. And I thought that's really odd because, and it reminded me of something. Have you ever been on another, in another part of the world and, you, and you're in the airport and then you see somebody you know from America or you see somebody you know from a completely different context? I remember being in Sri Lanka one time 
and I'm shopping, and one of my friends from Duarte, who's Sri Lankan, he just walks up to me. And for about three minutes, I didn't really believe it was him. Isn't that strange? The, because what happened was with the disciples is that they were so used to seeing Jesus in such a way, then they saw him completely disfigured on the cross, completely, uh, uh, completely in a different form. And then they see the resurrected Christ and they're completely confused because it doesn't make sense that he would actually be here. And a lot of times what we, what we do is this, we understand Jesus, we understand God in one context, but we dare not bring him into every context of our life because we actually won't recognize him. And so Easter is a, is a space, is a, the resurrection life of Christ is a time and a place and a space where Jesus enters into all of our contexts and we better recognize it. We better recognize when God comes to every one of our contexts, even the ones that we don't want him in. And that is why Jesus becomes, is unrecognizable, so to speak. John, John has an agenda in mind when he talks about um, how the clothes are folded a certain way and how that actually gave him an idea of, oh, maybe he did resurrect. Maybe he is alive. Nothing was hurried, right? It looked like nothing was, nothing, everything was uh, in its proper order in the tomb. And so the scripture started to come to life. And then you have Mary, who all Mary Magdalene wants to do is retrieve the dead body. All she wants to do is grieve in a way that could help her move on. And and Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? Who could you possibly be looking for? And I just wonder if some of us today here in this very moment, we're grieving, but we're grieving in a way that's now inappropriate. We're grieving in a way that, um, that we probably shouldn't be grieving anymore. And maybe for some of us today, it's time to stop grieving you know, grieving is actually very important. Grief is, 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 uh, is, is not only important, but it's necessary for our healing. But maybe on this day, this day of Easter, that God might be speaking to some of you to say that your time of grief is over and now God wants to move you into a new season. Okay? So these are just things that may be relevant to us that I just saw that popped out in the course of John's description here. Your grief is what was, but what's in front of you is far greater and will outweigh your grief. So we've got to know this, that, that Jesus' resurrection means that the joy of the future is far greater than the grief of the past. The velocity of the joy is greater than the sting of defeat, death, and suffering. And so here we, here we come to the meat of our text right now for purposes of this sermon in verse 24. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, 
unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of his hands and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Actually, even before I go here, here's my, here's the irony of it all. The disciples could not even evangelize to one of them. Can you, can you imagine the irony of this whole thing? Here, Jesus is about to come, blow on them the Holy Spirit, and commission them to go into all of the worlds and tell them about what just happened. And these poor guys don't even have the ability to convince one of their own. I mean, it's unbelievable, the lack of faith. They couldn't even evangelize their own brother. They couldn't even evangelize the guy that was in the in crowd. How could we, how could you expect to evangelize the rest of the world? How? And I think this is, there's something really critical here. In verse, in verse 26, a week later, his disciples were again all in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Jesus loves going through doors. (laughs) Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put put it in my side. Do not doubt but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? And here's where I think Jesus gets away from that setting in that room. And he looks towards human, he looks toward you and I right now, and he looks toward human history, and he says these words Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. So here he is with his disciples and he's proving himself to them. And he's and he's engaging with doubting Thomas, poor Thomas, because we're all just like him. And we're engaging, he's engaging with him, and then he steps aside. I imagine there's like I imagine there's just this, maybe an invisible window in the scene. He's talking to his disciples. He's proving himself to Thomas. Thomas believes. And then I imagine him looking out of this invisible window and he says, blessed, blessed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. There is a precious blessedness. There is a deeper blessing for those who have not seen, but yet will still come to believe. And this is very important because that statement has to do with today. That statement has to do with all of us. Because we think, we th- I think, that something happened in the resurrection that changed the way that we could now accept and receive Jesus. It's almost as if those of us that came after the eyewitnesses have uh, an ability to engage with Jesus by, by, by the power of the Holy Spirit that only came after he left. We have an ability to experience faith in a radical way. See, we always think of the disciples as these people of faith and, and, and we venerate them and, and we, we um, honor them and, and maybe rightfully so. But we don't actually understand that they didn't believe. And they, they, had to, they had to see physical evidence. But all of us here, nobody's, nobody was there. 
We were not there and we didn't see, but we have this precious ability to enter into the blessedness that God gives us for not being there, but still being able to believe. And see, I think we can tap into this today, but we have to get some things right about what faith actually is and what faith may not be. And see, I think we think of faith as this elusive thing that's something that's very hard to grasp because it's only, the the gift of faith is only for these powerful men and women, these mighty giants that we read about in the Bible, and then, then those are the people that had faith and, you know, we just have salvation and it's faith, but not in a powerful way. See, today, I just want to reinterpret some of the things that we call faith, okay? So I want to look at Hebrews 11, This is like our Mount Rushmore of faith. And I just want to look at some of the ways that uh, God might be talking to us today about what faith may actually be. And we're not going to go, when you have time, read the whole chapter. But the first thing I want you guys to consider is this. Verse 6, Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible. Let's say this again. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Okay, I want you to repeat this even if nobody's around you. That with faith, you have to believe that God exists. Say, believe that God exists. And you have to believe that he rewards those that seek him. So believe that he exists and believe that he rewards. Okay? We're going to come back to this. But this is very important. Believe that God exists and believe that he rewards. And here's where I want to, here's where, here's where I want to continue. Let's look at verse 23. This is the faith of Moses. Okay? By faith, Moses was hidden by his parents. So these are his parents' faith for three months after his birth because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse suffered for the Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward. It's interesting. He, it says he considered abuse suffered for the Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward, even though this is way before Jesus' time. By faith he left Egypt, unafraid of the king's anger, for he persevered as though he saw him who is invisible. Okay? By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. So we know, and, and it's commonly known in Christian circles and in non-Christian circles, Moses was a man of faith. Okay, it's not a, it's, this is not a newsflash. But here's something that was a newsflash for me. Verse 29. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. Let me read that again. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. Why is that faith for for the Israelites? They had no option. 
They had nothing else to do. In fact, they, they were grumblers. They grumbled all the time. How is it faith? It's Moses' faith. That's Moses' faith, isn't it? But the Bible says that by faith, these people, when they, when they saw the, 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 the Pharaoh's army following them, and they just saw the sea split into two, it required faith for them to walk through. See, I would never ascribe faith to that. I would just ascribe necessity to that. I would say that's just what you do. When you have a, when, when, the, when, the, when the house is set on fire, is it faith that you run out? Or it's just, that's what you do. And see, I want to say to you today that I think that God is saying that we actually have faith. You and I have faith. Though we struggle, we actually have faith. We would just never ascribe faith to that very thing. And so what happens is we devalue ourselves and we, real, and we tell, tell ourselves and tell the world that we have no faith. And it diminishes the seed and the thing that God actually gave us, which is faith. Okay? There are things in our life, there are things in our life that require faith that we would never call faith. My wife and I have a preschool, a Montessori preschool, and every day 80 kids, which basically translates to 160 parents right now, entrust their children to us. Like every single day when I drop my kids at school, kids to school, I start praying because I see the deep responsibility that we have. One, for the safety of those kids. And two, for the development of them, that we would be able to put something into them and they would carry it on with them for the rest of their life. Because to be honest, that's what the Montessori education did for me. So I'm a creative and I do all these things now because of actually what the Montessori education helped me develop when I was two to four years old. So I know the preciousness of it. Now, parents wouldn't actually describe it as faith to let go of your kids for eight hours a day. But that is actually one of the scariest things to do if you're a parent is to let go of your children for eight hours a day and pray to God that they come back alive. I'm serious. I lost my mom when I was nine years old. And for t- 10 years after that, every day when, when I would come home and one person or two people like my dad or my brother were not home yet, I would pray, Lord, please let them come home safe. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And then when one came, I would say, thank you, God, for that. Please let the other one come home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Because I was so traumatized by the fact that my mom was no longer there. So whatever I had left, I had to make sure they came back home. See, I know some of that is my, was my own issues. Some of that was my own depravity. But a lot of that was faith. I believe that God controlled lives. I believe that God had our lives in his hand. And so I was exercising faith as a 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old to where I would pray for 10 years. Whoever was not in the house, I would pray that they come. Even when I went to college, my, my roommates weren't home yet, I would silently pray that to myself. I was exercising faith. But here's the thing. I wouldn't call it faith. I would have called it trauma. I would have called it, I would have called it my own issues. But and sure, that was there, but some of it was faith. Do you know that you guys drive like these large objects of metal every single day at 60 miles per hour? Do you know that you do that? And you you actually believe that nothing's gonna happen to you on the 110. 
the worst freeway of all time. Nothing's going to happen to you on the 110 and you drive and you drive boldly, some of you. Some of you too boldly. What is that? That's called faith. For some reason, you just believe that you're going to make it to downtown LA and then you'll come right back. Why don't we ascribe that as faith? These are faithful steps. Walking outside is an act of faith. Falling in love and getting married. Oh boy, is that faith. Because you don't know what that person is going to become five years from now. <laughs> Lydia, didn't know, Lydia didn't know who is Rajiv, the Rajiv that said, I do, will be a better version in five years or a worse version in five years. And she had to have faith in God, first of all, and then maybe some faith in me that I would actually own up to the vows that I said to her. This is faith. What are the things in your life that you have basically diminished and not called faith because of your poor sense of self-image and who you are in Christ? What are the things that you have, you have said, that's not faith, that's just my hustle. That's life. That's my reaction. Let me tell you something. When Jesus died and he resurrected, he put in you an ability, a resilience, an ability to move forward, an ability to just call out to him and have some measure of faith, some measure of faith so that that faith can grow. And as you hold and as he holds your hand and as he rescues you day by day, that faith would grow, grow, grow and, and become so big that it will move mountains. That is a life of faith. The people passed through the Red Sea because at any, any, any moment those waters could have drowned them. But another way that you could say it is they had no choice. They had no choice. And some of you have no choice right now. All you have is faith. And I don't want you to look at that faith and scorn it and say, oh, that's nothing. No, it's something. That's what Easter is about. Easter provided you that something because Jesus took it all upon himself. He took all your shame, all the guilt. He took all your past mistakes and he bore it. And then he, and then he resurrected and he defeated death so that you could have something. You could have something that can take you from strength to strength to strength. Don't scorn it. Love it and call it what it is. There's a world of faith that actually opened up to all, you and I because of Easter, because of the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a world of faith that opened up. And some of you may have never heard uh, the gospel before, and you may feel on the outskirts, the outside, but I want to tell you today that there's a world of faith that's open to you. I... <clears throat> In, at the end of 2015, my wife and I were married for like almost three years, and we were like, you know, maybe we should have kids. And so we tried to have, we, we, we tried to get pregnant, and um, we actually got pregnant quite soon. And in October of 2015, uh, we, we had our first appointment at the doctor, and Soon after that, we went to Fall Conference, which is a conference that we have at this church um, at Forest Homes. It's a beautiful time. And at that Fall Conference, Lydia actually had a miscarriage at Fall Conference. 
at that one, one or two days, there was a miscarriage that happened. And we didn't actually know what was happening because, honestly, we were, like, brand new to the game of, <laughs> of pregnancy and all that. So we thought maybe it's normal, maybe it's not, but she was in pain. And so anyway, we, 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 that the, the next day we came back, we found out it was a miscarriage. And it was really hard for a couple of days, but honestly, like, we were really new, new. So we didn't really know how to grieve it. It's actually weird uh, to grieve that type of thing because you don't know how to grieve it because um, you didn't see the child and it was so early on. Um, but we had faith and we had a lot of faith that God said he wants to give us life and he wants this to lead to life. So, you know, we cried through it, but then we, got, we moved on. And the doctor said, don't try and get pregnant for three more months. And so we didn't. But then we tried in three months, and then um, and then we didn't get we didn't think we got pregnant. But Lydia was experiencing a, a lot of pain and bleeding, so I was like, "You need to go to the hospital." She went to the hospital, and long story short, she actually had an ectopic pregnancy. And an ectopic pregnancy is when um, the the fertilized egg gets stuck in one of the fallopian tubes, and it's no longer a viable pre- pregnancy. And if you leave it for a few more days, you could actually bleed to death. And many people have died from this. And at this point, Lydia and myself were absolutely crushed because she was in the emergency room, and we're like, what is going on? Are we ever going to actually have a child? And And ironically enough, she told me that when we were engaged, she told me she had heard about this thing called ectopic pregnancies, and it really scares her. And so when she had it, my first thing was like, not that. I didn't even know what it was. I had to Google it. That's the thing I remember she told me four years ago that she was afraid of. And it was at this time where um, we were completely devastated, and the, the doctor was like, you know, you might actually have to have a hysterectomy because um, if it's too much bleeding, we'll have to take everything out, and you can't actually have a child. But the best-case scenario is we'll take out one of your fallopian tubes, and then you'll have a 50% chance of having a child. And I'll never forget, we prayed and we prayed, and, but we prayed with tears, and we prayed with doubt. And we prayed with insecurity. And we prayed without knowing anything. So we didn't actually know where faith was. See, it's hard to tell where faith is at that point. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget, Pastor Cohen, Cindy came to the emergency room, and they only let one person in at a time. And Cindy uh, came to Lydia, and she prayed just for like five minutes because she was about to go to surgery. And she said, um, I feel like God is saying, God, God is removing the egg by itself, okay, whatever that meant. Now, scientifically, I, don't, I didn't know what that meant at the time, but she just said that. She saw it rolling out. Long story short, Lydia went through the surgery expecting for one fallopian tube to be removed, and what actually happened was I was waiting in the waiting room, and the doctor came to me after surgery, and she has been doing this for 30 years, and she did the surgery, and she said, very stoically, she said, it was kind of a miracle. I've never seen this in 25 years of doing this. But the egg, we didn't touch any of the tubes. The egg just rolled out. And she had never seen that in 25 years. And why I say this is that Easter happened 
in that hospital room. Easter actually happened. But here's the thing. We didn't know that we were full of faith or anything like that because we were grieving and we were depressed and we thought that we may never have a child. But Easter happened at that moment because there was faith. But see, there was faith and insecurity. There was faith and hopelessness. There was faith and tears. But we, 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 at some point, you have to just trust God and say that the faith that you have in him and the resolve to move on is faith enough. And some of us, we're so drowned by our fear. We're so drowned by our insecurity. We're so drowned by repeated events of disappointment that we don't actually realize that there's still faith there. It's just really drowned out. But if you allow, if you invite the Holy Spirit into your life, if you, if you invite the resurrected Christ into your life, not the empty tomb, but if you, if you, if you invite the resurrected Christ in your life, you will see that that faith will grow and grow and grow. And it will grow so big that you cannot doubt even on your worst day. And I wonder if we've ever allowed God to do that with our faith because we've never ascribed it to faith. We've just thought it was, it was moving forward like the Israelites did when the Red Sea opened. Because, well, that's all we could do. But that's faith. He is risen. We need to get away from this idea that faith is for a chosen few, there is a blessedness for those that cannot see yet still believe. Blessed are those that cannot see but still believe. And it might not feel like Easter. It might not have felt like Easter was there in that emergency room with me and Lydia in there. It might not have felt like the resurrection life of Christ was there in death. But it was there. And it is here today in your life. I want to conclude with one of my favorite stories in Scripture. And this is Luke chapter 8. This is Luke chapter 8, verses, I'm just going to read 40 to 48. I wish I could read the whole story, but we don't have that much time. Now, when Jesus returned, Luke Luke 8, verse 40 to 48. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Just just then there came a man named Jairus, a leader of the synagogue. He fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had only an only daughter, about 12 years old, who was dying. As he went, the crowds pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years, and though she had spent all she had on physicians, no one could cure her. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his clothes, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Then Jesus asked, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and press in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I noticed that power had gone out from me. When the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. 
he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. There's so many things in this passage that we can go through, but I'm going to only focus on a few things that I feel like God has on this Resurrection Sunday. And the first thing is this woman wasn't actually in Jesus's uh, view. Jesus was actually going to go help Jairus's daughter. And this woman probably would not have been chosen unless, of course, she chose herself to go and touch the fringe of his garment. So so there's, there's an aspect about faith that doesn't rely on you waiting around, but there's an aspect about faith that actually says, I know what God can do for me, so I am going to take initiative based on his ultimate initiative with me. And a lot of times we get faith confused. We think that we have to sit here and wait and wait and wait. But when Jesus paid the ultimate price, there was a, there was a, there was a, there was a freedom that was afforded you that you now have the, you can now have the faith to pursue God. You can now pursue God, not in a way that, not in a way that earns or not in a way that uh, needs to do works in order to earn God or, or gain his favor or love. No. That's already done. He already paid the price for that. You are already beloved. But now you have the opportunity to pursue the one who pursues you. This is a different aspect of faith that we don't talk about much. We pursue in such a way because we know what God's intention is for us, is for us to be healed. Okay, so that's, that's one aspect of this that screams at me. The, 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 the other thing is that there's crowds and sometimes there's a crowd. There's a crowd in your life that's pressing up against you. And a crowd is a very dangerous thing. To be honest with you, Easter is crowded. Okay, like this, typically Easter is when all the churches are filled. And praise God, they should be. They should be filled. And today, everyone will post on social media that he's risen. Everyone will wear pastel-colored clothing and take a selfie and say, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Everyone's going to do that. Easter feels very crowded sometimes. But the thing is, God God doesn't relate to the world like a crowd. He relate. he's a God. So he relates to us individually, though there are many of us. And I think for some of us, we tend to think of our faith life as just one person in the crowd. But see, Jesus, there's a difference. There's a reason why the crowd didn't all get healed and experience the power of God. There's a reason why he only stopped for one person. And I think today, Jesus wants to stop for you. But you have been someone who has struggled with the crowd And the crowd can represent all the things that bring out all the worst parts about you. The crowd may tempt you to compare yourself to them or where they're at. Nobody's big enough for this. doesn't matter how holy you are. The crowd can actually suffocate faith in you. Because we have this way of depersonalizing every... Institutions do this all the time. Institutions will depersonalize every single person for the, sake of an, for the sake of a goal. And sometimes you forget that Jesus will never do that with you. God the Father will never do that with you. You are one-on-one with Him. And yes, you might be in the context of groups or, or organizations or churches even. 
But as far as he's concerned, he stops for you when you believe. When you believe. The crowd can mess us up. And I don't think we understand the power of a crowd. Right? It's the power of the crowd that actually got Pilate to finally say, yes, I'll kill him. It's the power of the crowd will make, make the strongest man or woman do the stupidest things. It's the power of the crowd. And sometimes your family is the crowd. Sometimes your friend group is the crowd. Not sometimes, oftentimes the media is a crowd. And more often than that, social media is the crowd. It's crowded. And today, on this Resurrection Sunday, Jesus says, yeah, I know it's crowded, but I call you out of the crowd. Easter is about what Jesus did for every single person, but every single person individually. And you are an individual And God says, I know you by name. I think the craziest part about this is that she touched the fringe of of his garments, of his clothing, the outer edge. And this woman is a woman on the fringe herself. She is probably completely devalued in society. She probably has no more money because she spent all her funds on doctors She's been suffering for something for 12 years, so they probably called her deserving of it. And she is the epitome of what it means to be on the fringe. She's actually the opposite of what Thomas is on the inside. Thomas is on the inside, right? Doubting Thomas. He's on the inside, and this woman is on the outer edges. She's on the fringe. Yet her faith is commended by God. Her faith is completely... um, is, is casted in such a profound light that we all have to learn from this woman. And I just want to say to you today that Jesus is a man of the fringe. He's a man who comes to the outer edge. And here's the thing. You don't have to be a woman bleeding for 12 years to be someone who understands what it's like to be on the fringe. In fact, you might be a popular person or well-liked, but there are fringe things about you that you've never actually allowed God to come in and handle. You've never had the, there are fringe aspects about your life that have been through so much disappointment and hurt that you've never allowed the Holy Spirit to enter in because it feels so edge-worthy. It feels so much at the end, at the edge of what God cares about. And Easter says this, Jesus cares about every aspect of your life, every tiny disappointment. He is there, and the resurrection of life can be applied to every edge, fringe place in your life. And she just, it, there's, a, there's, an interesting, there's an interesting place in Mark. I think it's Mark chapter 5, and this is the other version of the story, and I just want to read one verse to you, Mark. It's worth looking at. Mark chapter 5, I'm sorry, uh, Yeah, Mark 5. In Mark 5, in verse 28, before she touches his garments, the the fringe of his clothes, it says, For she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. So it says, In verse 27, she had heard about Jesus 
and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Remember, remember Hebrews in Hebrews 11? She heard about Jesus, so she believed that he, what? That he exists. And if I touch his clothes, I shall be made well, that he will reward her. This is the definition of faith. You believe that God exists and that God will reward you if you seek him. That's exactly what she did. She heard about him. Oh, I heard about this guy, Jesus. And then I, I believe that if I pursue him, not, not just that he, if he pursues me, if I pursue him, then I will be rewarded. I will be healed. This is an application of Hebrews chapter 11. But you need not be typecasted as a fringe person to go through fringe moments in your life. And honestly, I have felt like a person on the fringes my entire life. My entire life. We came to this country um, as immigrants. We came as a result of a civil war that was actually trying to exterminate my, my race in my country. And then we came to this context in, in, in Sri Lanka, in, in America, in Pasadena. And in Pasadena, I've always felt like a fringe person in the church. I, my mom was Christian, so that's how my brother and I first got exposed to Christianity. But she passed away quite early. And so then primarily I was in a non-Christian house. I have non-Christian family, so I'm always a fringe person there. I, I do music, <laughs> and if you love God and do music in the music industry, you're automatically fringe. There's really no place that I actually belong. I really, and this is not like a woe is me, because this is all of us. We don't actually belong. We're actually always in, on the fringe. And even the times when the crowd applauds you, the crowd will also stop applauding you. And the crowd, you may think that the crowd's on your side, but really they're not. The crowd is about themselves and self-preservation. So as soon as you deviate from the crowd, you will be the one who's scorned. And so there are fringe places in our lives. There's outer edges where Jesus moves towards and he loves it because these fringe places are opportunities for us to experience a radical faith. And today you might have been in prison, you might be back from prison, you might have no job, you might have no money, you might have no status. People will look at you and they may devalue you and underestimate you all the time. You might be completely, severely underrated all the time. But I want to say to you that that is the place where the resurrection and the cross applies. It's to every single fringe area in your life. And the Holy Spirit is saying today that you bring me your fringe places. I will come to the outermost part of whatever supposed Christianity or non-Christianity that you have, wherever the outer edges are, I will come there. I will come and you just touch my fringe. You just touch the fringe of my cloak and it's done. The resurrection happens there. Easter happens on the fringe. Easter happens there. That's what the radical act of the cross represents that it was not an exclusive thing for a few chosen people, but for God so loved the world, for everybody. Yes, the, the, gate, the, the, the road is narrow, but it's still inclusive of everybody. Jesus was on his way somewhere else. 
he was on his way somewhere else. And, and, and I, think, I think we can't get around the fact that in this story, Jesus was going somewhere else. And I think for a lot of us, we may think that Jesus is going somewhere else. He, he's not coming to you. He is coming to you. He's just waiting for you to touch the outer edge of his garment. Because in that space, that's where faith will multiply. And that's where your generations after you, because of what you did and because of the obedience that you had, you will change the world. And I just want to say to you, as followers of Jesus today, and maybe you are not a follower of Jesus and you want to become one, you are commissioned to change the world. Even though you were not an eyewitness, even though you were not originally a part of the early disciples, you are part of the, the disciples of eternity. Those blessed are those that have not seen, yet still believe. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you and praise you for Easter. We don't need to know what the right thing to say is when someone says he is risen. But like Simone, maybe we just say thank you. We don't need to know the right words to articulate our faith. We don't have to know what's culturally appropriate. We don't have to play the rules of the crowd. But sometimes we just get our elbows super messy and we get our knuckles really hardened and we fight and crawl our way to the fringe of your garment. Because of what you did and the price that you paid, we now have the right to exercise our faith. So come, Holy Spirit, take our tiny spaces of faith that are so overwhelmed by insecurity and doubt, and may we experience the resurrection life of Christ there. We thank you for this day. It is a happy Easter indeed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.